When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Maybe it's just that you don't know how to use social courtesy. Oh, that's old-fashioned. Watch how Lizzie Post and Dan Post Senate act as host and hostess. They know that courtesy means showing respect, thinking of the other person, real friendliness. Hello! And welcome to Awesome Etiquette. Where we explore modern etiquette through the lens of consideration, respect, and honesty. On today's show, we take on your etiquette questions on compliments about appearance at work, stripping a bed, paying your way at a rehearsal dinner, contributing to a joint ride, and how to handle a lot of parties in your honor in a short period of time. Plus your most excellent feedback, etiquette salute, and a postscript segment on royal etiquette. Coming up... Awesome Etiquette comes to you from the studios of Vermont Public Radio and is proud to be produced in Burlington, Vermont by the Emily Post Institute. I'm Lizzie Post. And I'm Dan Post-Senning. And I am really liking weekends. Aren't weekends nice? This was a long weekend. This was a long weekend. (laughs) I want more of them, cousin. Can we change our workflow to be a four-day work week instead? Someday. (laughs) One day. One day. You had a fun weekend, though. You did something that we talk about annually, and that is your fantasy football draft. One of the highlights of my fall. (laughs) How'd it go this year? Was there blood spilled? (laughs) As he looks off into the distance. I'm like, there's a story. I wish you could see Dan's face. There's a story coming. It was emotional for me this year. (laughs) Oh, Oh, what happened? I had to make a tough decision in the second round. I'm okay with it. I'm I'm, I'm all right. But what was the decision? I'm a big Patriots fan. Yeah, we know. Rob Gronkowski was still on the board. <laughs> it's a touchdowns only league. I've the taken Gronk. him even earlier in years gone by. But um, there were also some other really highly rated players. It was like, do I, do I stick to my tiers? Do I go with my average draft position rankings? Or do I make that emotional choice? And <laughs> after a couple tough years in the standings, I, I, I stuck to my, my formula and my system <laughs> But I'm living with the regret today. <laughs> what, so what did you end up doing? The formula in the system, did that lead to Gronk or no Gronk? Antonio Brown, number one rated receiver on the draft board. I, I had to take him in the second round. Just had to do it. And, but, and, that's, and you, you regret that now? I'm going to miss Rob Gronkowski okay. all year long. So it's not so much a regret as it is a, a missing and a reminiscing of the past kind of a nostalgia for him. We uh, cast a vote at the start of the year. People propose changes to the fantasy league. They're proposed changes. They're, they're proposed changes and we vote on them each year. This is a particular league that's been in existence almost since high school. It's got a almost 20-year tradition. It started before <laughs> the internet. We still get together in person. We we write down the names on a giant piece of paper. A, a giant piece of paper. And our scoring system is antiquated. It's old. No one uses it anymore. And (laughs) because it's been the same for so long, change happens very slowly in our league. And someone had proposed a change and it was my turn to vote. And I was getting out of the last couple of votes and I was going to be a determinant 
factor whether we made a change or didn't. I just said, I fear change. Ah, <laughs> you kept them in the old school. You, you went with whatever last year's and the previous year's had been. Call me a traditionalist. How upset was the person who had proposed the change? Not at all. No one oh, ever okay. really expects that these changes are going to be adopted. Oh, okay. I think we've changed the league once or twice in the last almost 20 years. Man. I know. And the we, in-depth world of Daniel Post Senning's fantasy football draft. We showed great restraint this year. We yeah. didn't do a postscript segment on <laughs> drafting etiquette or fantasy football. So this is our little indulgence. <laughs> I love it. I'm not in a fantasy league this year. So I have I have nothing to contribute in that. But I wish you well. Please take me out to lunch if you win. <laughs> Let's get to some etiquette questions. Let's do it. Awesome Etiquette gets support from StoryWorth. There are some stories about your mom's life that you truly never get tired of hearing. From hilarious to heartfelt, tear-jerking to plot-twisting, mom's retelling of the events always brings a bit of joy. Just in time for Mother's Day, we here at Awesome Etiquette found the perfect gift that can capture all of your mom's stories for your family forever. It's called StoryWorth. StoryWorth helps you preserve precious memories and stories from your mom or a mother figure in your life for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question that you get to help pick. What was your first job? Who was your first crush? (laughs) StoryWorth makes the writing process a breeze. All your loved one needs to do is to respond to the email prompt with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. I did this with my mom, and it was really, really rewarding. You'll be emailed a copy of your loved one's responses as they're submitted over the course of the year. You'll get to enjoy their retelling of the stories, some you probably already know, or maybe the ones that you're surprised by you haven't heard before. (laughs) After that year of fun discovery and reminiscing, StoryWorth compiles your loved one's stories and photos into a beautiful keepsake hardcover book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift that you all will cherish for years. Story Worth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash manners. That's storyworth, S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash manners. It's manners with an S to save $10 on your first purchase. And now back to our show. Awesome Etiquette is here to answer your questions on how to behave. And if you have a question for us, you can email it to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. Leave us a voicemail at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. That does spell kind in case you were wondering. Or hit us up on Twitter and Facebook. Just use the hashtag Awesome Etiquette so we know you want your question on the show. This question is titled, Bad Ice Breakers. Hi, Lizzie and Dan. I love your show. I have a question about how to respond to my manager. She always greets me and other coworkers in the morning by complimenting our appearance, how we look that day, an article of clothing, an outfit, etc. This is all well and good, but it happens every single morning, and because of that, seems almost disingenuous. I usually respond with a thank you, it was a gift, or thank you, I love your dress too. But this is exhausting and sometimes makes me feel disingenuous. 
I feel like it's just her way to break the ice. She's in her early 50s and has worked in professional settings for her entire professional career, so she's been doing this for a while. She's also my direct manager, and I have a good relationship with her. I'm of the mindset of only complimenting clothing or appearances once in a while so that the compliments come off genuine and to usually greet folks with a, how are you this morning, ready for the day, or just a simple good morning. I also tend to ask about something relevant like how was the conference yesterday or did you watch the news today? Being a woman in her late 20s, it always makes me feel uncomfortable to get complimented a lot. And while I've become much better at simply saying thank you and not trying to downplay the compliment thanks to your podcast, I'm wondering if there's a different way you would handle this. I would love to remain anonymous. Thank you for any advice you can give. This is a tricky one. It's a little tough. This is a tough one. You've got someone um, being what they feel is seemingly nice and, and complimentary, and you have someone else saying, that makes me uncomfortable. That's a tough spot. And then we throw into the mix that this is a superior at work and that at work there is kind of a baseline idea that no matter what your gender, you just kind of leave looks out of it. Mm-hmm. You just you you leave looks out of work. And we've got a generational difference here, too. And I think a lot of people from the bosses or the manager's position find compliments on looks to be complimentary, not to be offensive or over the top or disingenuous. So and then we've got kind of a, a woman in her 20s saying, hey, sort of what I've grown up with and what I know is that you kind of don't do this. My vote is that what Anonymous is doing is kind of one of the best ways to go, which is to conduct herself in the way she would most like to be treated. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to to really make the decision as to whether to call out a superior on a, a, a kind of... I worry about calling this a low-level offense. I feel like from Anonymous, she's receiving it as a low-level offense, but because of the repetition, this is where it's getting annoying. Um, that it's as she says, it's not bad being complimented, but I really don't love this. Like, is there something I can do? Would you talk to HR? What do you think, Dan? Would you would you maybe bring it up and say, hey, could we maybe remind people that complimenting appearances isn't a great idea? I don't think that's a terrible idea. I was okay. really curious where you would come down on okay, this one. Thanks. <laughs> I, I, there is a question, a, a gendered question that comes into play here. Sure. Women have their looks complimented on much more frequently than men. Yep. We do talk about a, a gender neutral standard for business etiquette being important. Yeah. At the same time, I, I like the way you're assessing to what degree this is being perceived and felt mm-hmm. as an offense. Yeah. And there are these moderating factors that we hear in the question itself. Yeah. This manager is doing her best. I think she <laughs> thinks this is good behavior. We also encourage people to offer compliments. It's a good way for managers to support their team and build up their team. But you want to focus it on the work, not their looks. You really do. And we can also see that in the question. The the, the examples, the sample scripts that are given here. How was the conference yesterday? Questions about current events, things that are going on, things that show interest in someone's life. Ready for the day. I like that one, by the way, just so you know. I do, too. (laughs) I also want to acknowledge the importance of these first greetings. They are important. They're an important part of good collegial work relationships. To answer your question directly, do I think that's a good idea to go to HR? I think you could. Yeah. And I think the way that you brought it up, could we offer a general reminder about commenting on people's appearance in the workplace? I think that that's a proportional response. I do think you get into tricky territory correcting someone's behavior, particularly a supervisor or boss. You might be able to do it depending on the relationship. I was going to say, and I know that work environments are supposed to create 
the supportive environment that would allow for this young woman to feel confident going to HR and saying, hey, there's a lot of compliments about looks happening. And even though it's, you know, coming from someone I think is really well intentioned, it might be a good reminder to the whole staff that really appearance should be left out of business aside from a manager or someone telling you you need to dress better for your job or more appropriately for your job, you know. Certainly, appearance is like the first step down the road of then uncomfortable compliments that lead to some form of of a harassment concern. If that's how you feel about this, I would go to HR. I always want to encourage someone that feels like something is really inappropriate to go to HR or whomever it is that represents HR at your company. I mean, we have a really small company. There isn't really an HR. You know, you have to set the paths. But I would want to know from you. Yeah. If there was something that you perceived me doing that was really inappropriate in the workplace, and right. I would want to know because it matters to me to help foster a workplace where people feel good, where people feel comfortable, where the focus and the attention is on the good work that we're all doing together. So there is that spirit yeah. in which you might make that that well, more personal connection about something like this. And you and I are on the same level at our company. We're we're on equal footing. Good point. What would you do to encourage, let's say, an intern that, that came in and – um, and and remind them that it's okay to to state their level of comfort. Um, I think in some ways it's really great when managers can invite, you know, any kind of I don't want to call it criticism, but just feedback. Feedback. As you were asking the question, I was thinking, well, hopefully, if we're doing our our job well as managers, we're having periodic check ins. We're saying, how's it going here? How's the work? How's your schedule? How's all? Am I annoying in any way? Are there things that we could do to be more supportive of you as you yeah. spend your time with us? And and hopefully those check-ins happening on yeah. a semi-regular basis. That might be a moment of opportunity for one of these uh, types of corrections, course corrections that – are in that more moderate territory, but would make your day start off a little more smoothly. So there you have it. Managers out there, consider taking a moment and asking for a little feedback of your teams. And Anonymous, please please feel encouraged to go to HR if you would really like to bring up this subject or to continue doing exactly what you are doing, the ready for the day, the good mornings, how was the conference, um, you know, thank you. Nice to see you this morning as well. They are all appropriate responses given what you're dealing with. And just it, it really comes down to your own comfort level and when you're ready to make that conversation one you can have with HR or whether you say, you know what, I understand what's going on here and I'm going to keep doing what I do and be the example I'd like to be. Good luck continuing to maintain that sincere and genuine ability to give and receive a compliment. Know your job. Enjoy it, but also enjoy the people that you're working with. Treat others as you want to be treated. Be considerate of them, and be considerate of your employer. Remember those simple rules of office etiquette, and you'll get along in the business world. Our next question is about rehearsal dinner don'ts, and I believe it came from Twitter. Um, at Badger Fan Chris wrote to at Emily Post Inst. Boyfriend BF in wedding and was asked to pay for our rehearsal buffet dinners. Is this the new norm? Hashtag awesome etiquette. Um, can I just say that in the show notes, the very first thing Dan Post sending Dan wrote was nopers. <laughs> Often rehearsal dinners are small. 
<laughs> Which I was like, that's not the point. Okay, so the, the, the point that I was trying to make is, first of all, I don't think that it's a new norm to ask people to pay for their share of a rehearsal dinner. Nopers, it's not. <laughs> but what I meant by often rehearsal dinners are small is that if you were looking at the cost of a wedding and it was starting to really feel like it was ballooning on you, getting out of control was more than you could or wanted to manage, that, that rehearsal dinners are often small, intimate affairs. Yes. They don't need to involve everyone who's going to be at the wedding. Absolutely and, not, yeah. Um, that, that, that's one way that you could think of managing that event in a way that it's not going to impact your pocketbook as, as host, dramatically. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There are certain types of parties that would suggest that you would be bringing some food or contributing or something like that, but it doesn't sound like that. It sounds like you, you had a host who really kind of didn't know what to do and chose the wrong avenue. And that happens sometimes, and because this is someone else's wedding, I'm guessing y'all just rolled with it, and you paid for your plates, and, and you did what was asked of you, um, and you just know that you would handle it differently as the host of your own rehearsal dinner. That's kind of the best thing you can do when you're up against bad etiquette, is just use your own good etiquette. But I would say that this is not a trend, this is not the new norm. Whomever it is that's hosting the rehearsal dinner should be paying for the for everything, and, and you should not be asking your guests to pay for their plate, even if they're in the wedding party. And rehearsal dinners, Dan is right, they can actually be only the people at the rehearsal and then those people's uh, either spouses or dates for the evening. That's it. You've got the officiant, the bridegroom, then anyone who actually walks down that aisle. Those are the only people you really need. Maybe someone who does a reading, that sort of thing. If you're involved in the actual ceremony, you're at the rehearsal dinner and then those people's dates or children. Buffet or plated service. We hope this helps. <laughs> Yuppers. Our next question is titled, Make or Strip? Don't you wonder what it's about? <laughs> I, I was intrigued for a second. Megan asks via Twitter, at Emily Post Ince, should you make or strip a bed before you leave a host's house? I love this because we just did the question on the, the guests who, who maybe didn't do a good job of this, even when it was clear what they should do. Um, the best answer is to ask the host what he or she prefers. And that's how you get the conversation, you know, the night before, hey, tomorrow morning, do you want me to make my bed or strip it for you or strip it and remake it with fresh sheets? Third option is like you could take care of the most for your host. And I'll take guest responsibilities even a step further. Do it. And I'll say that in our book, what we recommend is if you can't ask the host, if you don't have that option, that your default is that you strip the sheets off the bed and then remake the bed with just the bed spread. So you leave it looking really nice. I love it. But you've also done the work of stripping the sheets off the bed. And that serves as sort of a reminder for your host that that bed's been used. And then the sheets can get cleaned and ready for the next guest. I love it when they're short and sweet. You know, many things can make or mar a friendship. How would you react to this next scene? Our next question is called Puzzled Passenger. Hi, Lizzie and Dan. I was hoping you could help me with a situation that puzzled me earlier. I was on a weekend trip with a friend who lives in a different city, and we parted ways this morning to go home. I had an airport transfer picking me up, and she was going to take a bus back to her city. My transfer was painfully expensive because of the time of day and the location where we were staying. My friend asked my driver where she could get the bus from, and he said he could drop her off down the road if she wanted to hop in the car with me. He then suggested he take her to a farther point she could get the bus from so she'd be even closer to her final destination. 
This was all on the way to the airport, so it wasn't an inconvenience for me. By the time she got out, we'd been driving for over half an hour, and it was only an hour trip to the airport. My friend left without offering to share any of the cost of the journey, and this left me a bit miffed. While I can appreciate that I was already prepared to pay the whole cost of my transfer, that the car was already going that way, and it made no difference to my journey if she joined, I still found it a bit off that she didn't offer to contribute at all, especially when we'd previously talked about how outrageously expensive it was going to be for me. If she'd planned to share part of the journey originally, she would undoubtedly have shared the cost with me. But because it was a last-minute unexpected change of plans, it seemed to me like she thought she could get away without contributing. Now, I tried to put myself in her shoes and thought that maybe she expected to be in the car for just a few moments and wouldn't have accepted the ride had she thought it would be as long and therefore something she should have contributed to. I didn't say anything to her because it wasn't a clear-cut situation to me, and I didn't think it worth having an awkward conversation over, especially when she may not have actively tried to avoid paying and just not thought about it. But now I can't help but think the polite thing to do would have been to at least offer a contribution to the cost. I don't plan on bringing it up with her, but I'm curious as to your thoughts on what the right thing to do in this situation would have been. Thank you in advance and keep up the wonderful podcast. Best wishes, Puzzled Passenger. Oh, Puzzled. I know. Don't you just love the go- the, the mental going through of all of that? That there's the, how could you not? There's even then a little bit of the blame. And then there's the remembering of who your friend is and what she would have done if this. And then the, the permission. And then the, I'm not going to bring this up, but can you tell me what would have been better? That's my I favorite part it. of this question is the, the, the self-reflection yes. that you can see going on here. And the did I handle it well? And, and asking myself, how would I have handled it better or differently? Because oftentimes that's the, the only and best course of action when confronted with behavior that feels rude. And can we just also give massive credit to Puzzled Passenger for understanding that – I mean she, she's come down pretty much where I'm at with this and I'll, I'll give a full detail of that in a second. But she understands that this didn't go the most polite way possible. But isn't then going to reap that on her friend. She's not going to do a, I know the right way that this should have been handled and I'm going to teach it to you. And I love that permission for things to go wrong and to look forward to the future to how should I handle this? Like, I love that. Yeah, I don't have a lot of advice for our puzzled passenger who was offering the ride right. or who was sharing it. I think that you did the right thing by not trying to bring it up in the moment and really push for a shared cost. And the only real advice that I can think of at this point is that beyond a little self-reflection about it, that you also let it go. Yep. That at some point you say to yourself, all the things that you've already said, this person wasn't expecting it. They were probably caught off guard. I like thinking about what could have been done that would have avoided the rudeness completely. And I'm putting myself in that other person's shoes who took the ride, got surprised. Which way is the bus stop? Oh, it's on our way. Hop in. I'm happy to let you off there. I I can see accepting that offer, taking that invitation. And assuming that it might only be a five-minute hop down the street as opposed to an over 30-minute ride. I can also see getting out 30 minutes later and not having cash in my pocket to offer to help, not Mm -hmm. having a budget for the trip that was part of maybe I'm not flying, I'm taking a bus because I'm really trying to save money Mm -hmm. and it's just not possible or it's something I'm not prepared for in the moment. Mm -hmm. I think that... Besides offering to contribute, a really genuine, well-felt, 
thank you could go a long way here. Thank you so much. Even a little bit of an explanation. I wasn't expecting this to take so long to join you. Mm -hmm. Thank Mm -hmm. you for this assist. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. I think that that probably – and I don't see any mention of that in the question – might have been enough to to pull this one out. Yes. No, that – if you really don't have anything to be able to contribute in that moment, it's okay to say – I'm so sorry because I know that this was expensive and I, I I wish I could contribute. That's one way to go about it. I also think that in the most generous capacity, even if you had all those, I don't have the extra cash, I don't even have the budget to add an extra, let's say the ride was 100 bucks, and you're now, really you should be offering your friend 50 bucks, And you just don't have an extra 50 bucks this month. You can say... I don't have this money now, but I would love to be able to repay this to you next month or when I can. You know what I mean? You could make the futuristic offer and then be sure to stick to it. Set that little reminder on your calendar. I've got to pay so-and-so that 50 bucks by by this month or whatever. That would be a very responsible and thoughtful way to go about it. I agree with Dan. I don't think there's much that you pursue about this one. And you could potentially say, wow, it'd be really great if you could split the cost. But I understand if you're caught off guard and and aren't able to. But I'd rather go with generosity between friendship and have that be extended rather than asked for. That would be the most polite if we're really going for most polite. But you asked what should have happened. Yes, when your friend got out and realized she had been in the car for half an hour, not just a five-block ride or something like that, she should have said, my goodness, this was a way bigger help than I they had imagined. I would love to offer to, to give you half for this ride, or if I don't have cash on me, I could whatever app system you have that shares money or send a check in the mail, making that offer in the moment when you realize you've been in that car for 30 minutes, that would have been the most polite thing to do if your friend was able to offer that cash. Puzzled passenger, I hope you feel just a little less puzzled and we want to applaud you for putting your friendship above the slight feeling of grievance. If you have any problems like those you've just seen, talk them over, get them settled. Because the only way to have a friend is to be one. And friendship is one of the most precious things in life. This question is about so many parties with so little time. (laughs) Life's tough. My name is William, and I am from Texas. My wife is from New Jersey, but she has lived here in Texas for three years. And boy, do we have an etiquette conundrum for you. I apologize beforehand if this comes off as sort of a dramatic Ask Abby story. Unfortunately, this is a very real situation, and I would be forever grateful if you can help me sort it out. A little backstory for context. My now wife and I found out earlier this year that we are expecting our first baby in January 2018. Congratulations. Indeed. Coincidentally, we learned of our baby's existence two weeks after we sent out Save the Dates for our wedding in New Jersey. (laughs) For that very same week as our due date. Oh, wow. (laughs) Funny and a bit awkward, we quickly moved our wedding date up and mailed out resave the dates to our guests. We had a smaller wedding than we originally planned, but we still had a great time. For those that couldn't make it to the wedding in New Jersey, some family, Texas friends and colleagues, we are planning a small barbecue to celebrate in Texas. So this brings us to my question. Seeing as we rushed to get a bridal shower in before the wedding, this occurred in June in New Jersey, we had our wedding in August, we were having our wedding barbecue in October in Texas, and my in-laws are throwing her a baby shower in New Jersey. Is it appropriate to also throw a baby shower in Texas in November for those who won't make it up to New Jersey for the baby shower there? 
My wife would be disappointed if we didn't have a baby shower where we live to celebrate with friends and family in Texas. However, I strongly suspect mother believes we are bordering on bad taste to have all of these parties in such a short time. Will you please help? Thank you. (laughs) First of all, congratulations on all the wonderful life events that you're experiencing. I know it's a very short amount of time, but it sounds like a lot of fun. And congratulations on describing what is a relatively complicated situation, I think, as succinctly as possible. Oh, yeah. No, totally. I just want to say that this is how everyone's story is different. Life unfolds a little differently for everybody. And I would hate for etiquette to punish you because your life unfolded quickly. And I would really hope that even though, sure, it's a little compacted, that all these friends and family really want to be celebrating you. My guess is that the folks in Texas would love to have the opportunity to go to the baby shower. That's my guess. And I want to encourage you by saying that the baby shower doesn't have to happen before the baby comes. Technically, you can throw a shower. I mean, I've been to a lot of showers after the baby comes. Sometimes there just isn't time beforehand. So if you wanted to pad out a little more time, consider... Sure, you're going to kind of family will probably help in getting you set up with a lot of those baby shower gifts that you would want before the baby actually arrives. But you can have a a post-birth shower um, that kind of fills in with all the other wonderful baby things that you're going to need for the rest of the time you have the baby for. I want to second that. (laughs) The The rest of the time you have the baby for the rest of your life with this child. (laughs) The two shower phenomenon happens. Yes. These days. It it really does. And I think it has more to do with who's hosting and what they're wanting to do. And I can see you as an honoree wanting to keep an eye on the larger arc of life and to show some restraint because there might become a point where three, four – Five showers down the road, it starts yeah, that's to... That's too much, yeah. <laughs> and, and I also want to applaud your awareness of mother's feelings here, that you're you're clearly um, feeling what's going on <laughs> in the, the slightly larger social context that all this is happening within. Yeah. At the same time, I'm, I'm right there with my cousin Lizzie that uh, multiple showers do happen for exactly the kind of reason that you're talking about, that you have two locations and two very different groups of people, and it's just not practical for mm-hmm. those different groups to be able to attend each other's events in this case. I, I, I hadn't thought of the idea of having it maybe after as a oh, way yeah. to start to extend the time frame. I like that idea. I think that's <laughs> yeah. another possibility that wasn't one of the ones I was thinking about. The only thing that I would add yeah. is check in with, with mom here. And yes. just acknowledge that you're feeling this from her a little bit and just see see how she's feeling. And if you're picking up on something that really is a, a strong belief of hers or a thought from her that you have a chance to address it, talk about it and feel her out a little bit and maybe talk with her some about why it's happening and that you also feel some of this yourself. And who knows, she might have even another idea that we haven't thought of, but that acknowledging that and communicating about it might be another way to just make everyone feel better. And from an etiquette standpoint, I want to remind you, too, that guests invited to that barbecue in Texas, that's technically considered a second reception. And that is they are not uh, obligated to send gifts. They weren't at the, the wedding that had the original ceremony and therefore it's considered a second reception. Those guests may want to give gifts, but they don't have to. And so that might alleviate mom's feeling of how many times we're asking people to come to a party with gifts to remember that this Texas barbecue doesn't require gifts at all. (laughs) Um, It's nice when people get them for you, but it's not actually you won't be sending out registry information for that. People will ask you if they would like to get you a gift, what what registry you know, you're know you using and that sort of a thing. So just, just remember that, too. I want to finish by saying, again, congratulations and yeah. congratulations. 
Lawrence. What a delightful problem to have so many parties in so little time. Thank you for sending in your questions and please send us updates and comments to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. You can leave us a message at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. Or hit us up on Twitter and Facebook. Just use the hashtag awesomeetiquette so we know you want your question on the show. Each week we like to hear your thoughts about the questions we answer and the topics we cover. Elle wrote in about a question where the listener hadn't sent thank you notes and they were years late. Dear Lizzie and Dan, I just heard the letter from the person who hasn't sent their wedding thank you notes yet. Thank you for encouraging him or her to send those notes. I sent a check as a wedding gift about five years ago to the daughter of a friend. I never received a thank you note. The check was cashed, but the experience seriously damaged how well I saw that daughter of a friend. If I were to receive a letter in the mail, even years later, it would provide closure and I would be grateful to receive it. Thanks. It's amazing how much it makes it better late than never. That is really the truth. And thank you for that feedback. Take that as encouragement, all of you who are out there wondering, is it too late? Should I still do it? Absolutely. It can really repair a relationship. I did it. I actually sent a late thank you. It was a couple months later from a, a, a meeting I had, and I it was weighing on my mind that I hadn't reached out. I reached out. I sent the thank you. I heard back from the person. It was nice to close that circle. It's amazing. We all feel better now, don't we? We really do. Our next piece of feedback came about uh, bike sharing from episode 143. Dear Lizzie and Dan, I'm a little behind on the podcast, so I apologize if this has been covered already. You were debating about the bike sharing and checking in and out at stations with people waiting. I see it like checking out library books. You have your card and can check out a book and have a set amount of time with it. If no one else is waiting for the book, you can renew it or check it in and then back out again. If there is someone waiting, you can either return it and move to the back of the line or keep it out and pay an overdue fine. Personally, I'm against checking it in and back out again when you know someone else is waiting. That, that I like that that is noted as a personal opinion within this greater idea. And then I thought this was sweet. Dan, I hope you and your family are doing well. You're all in my thoughts. Librarian listener. Thank you, librarian listener. Thank you, librarian listener. What an appropriate comparison in so many ways. And I think you express very succinctly sort of my general thoughts about the if you do turn to get to the back of the line. And then I started saying to myself, well, what about that movie you had at the video store and you just hadn't finished it and you just kept it? And, and you, you pay that little bit extra to retain it. There are some subtleties to this question, but I, I, I like the core thought that you're delivering here. I do, too. So thank you for sending us your thoughts and updates, and please keep them coming. You can send your comment or update to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or leave us a message at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5462. It's time for our Postscript segment, where we dive deeper into a topic of etiquette. And today's Postscript was something that Lizzie Post dug up, and I was absolutely delighted to see it. I don't get credit for this. We had a listener dig this up. Uh, No joke. This was great. I love it. Our listeners are so cool that they actually send us Postscript segments sometimes. And Paula sent it to us, and she she had this cool article on royal etiquette. 
And it was about 50 points. So we're going to do 25 today and 25 next week. And she just simply asked for our thoughts on these these points of royal etiquette. And I thought, well, that's kind of a fun invitation. Let's take her up on it. So, Paula, thank you so much for putting this on our radar. Indeed, Paula. Thank you. So Paula sent us this article. It is from L.com. We will share it on our Awesome Etiquette Facebook page so you can take a look at it. And the first of our lovely tips, I think, makes quite a lot of sense, which is when the queen stands, you stand. And that's just it. It's protocol for every single person to follow. If the queen is standing, you're standing. Makes sense to me. Right. This particular monarch gets that level of respect. Number two, no one can eat after the queen has finished her meal. When dining as a family after the queen has taken her last bite, everyone needs to stop eating. Okay, not totally, because American standards would differ on this one. This must be special to to this type of monarch. Tell me. This is one of the examples I use when I'm teaching dining etiquette. Really? As the queen places her spoon back in the bowl or her fork back on the plate, everyone at the table follows her cue and does the same thing. Everyone is pacing their meal off her. Everyone is following the host cues down to the the smallest detail. And it's a heightened level of formality that is my example of the, the most choreographed meal you could ever possibly participate in. That makes sense to me, because from just a strict host guest point of view, I would not ma- think that that makes for the best etiquette. But from a we are at a formal state league royal dinner and we are pacing things and everything's going to go perfectly. I could understand how you kind of have the orchestra conductor as the queen and everything follows what she does. And even at an informal meal, you wouldn't want to be the last one with food on their plate long after everyone else was Making done. Making everyone else wait. So this is an example of the tightening of that rule to the point where it, the the choreography is precise. And I'm guessing that this keeps the level of importance on the queen as the most important person in the room, too, because everything must follow what she does. Puts a lot on her. <laughs> That's for certain. Number three, bowing and curtsying is a requirement. Men of the royal family perform a neck bow while women curtsy when greeting the queen. And this happens every time, right? This is just always a standard. Noted form of protocol. I love it. Number four, marriage comes with a new name. Members of the royal family take a new name when they're married. And they say, man, their title section for, for British etiquette is way superior to our small title section here in America. For anyone who's curious, Debrett's is a great reference for keeping track of royal names and titles. Number five, PDA is looked down upon, especially when traveling. The royal family even refrained from holding hands. And they have this wonderful picture of William and Kate, who we know are so in love, standing with their hands, you know, hands held together, very upright. Their shoulders are barely touching each other. Once again, modesty being a point of of restraint and good etiquette. I love the example that's the heightened example from the royal family. Right. The focus is on them, not on them showing their love for each other. Number six, approval is needed before a proposal. According to the Royal Marriages Act of 1772, royal descendants must seek the monarch's approval before proposing. Most people sweat bullets when they're going to ask a parent or a guardian or someone really close to to their loved one for that permission or that that support. Sometimes Mm -hmm. we say you're not asking permission, you're asking support. Do you imagine having to approach the queen to be like, hey, I love this person. Is it cool if we're together? Like It it seems to run a little counter to this idea of romantic love that we hold so dear, but it's to me an interesting look at a, a whole social structure that places a great deal of importance 
importance on family. Number seven, a royal wedding bouquet must contain myrtle. Every royal bride carries myrtle in her wedding bouquet. That's like one of, for tradition, go for it. Sounds cool to me. <laughs> Number eight, every royal wedding party must include a crop of children. Royal wedding parties are usually made up of young children. Do you think that this is like an absolute have to or is this probably one of the ones that like just depends on how many royal kids there are around the couple? I would hope so. <laughs> that, that you wouldn't be that you couldn't get married if there weren't enough kids. <laughs> Number nine, until 2011, the royal family was prohibited from marrying a Roman Catholic. Now the family can marry someone of any faith. And that's 2011. That's that's a pretty new change, change in rules. I like to see the family evolving and adapting in this regard. Number 10, the family can't have political views. The royal family isn't allowed to vote or speak publicly about politics. Number 10, the family can't have political views. The royal family isn't allowed to vote or speak publicly about politics. I'm sure that keeps their dinner parties very polite. (laughs) Number 11, nor can they run for office. Since voting is off the table, members of the royal family aren't allowed to hold any type of political office. I'm not quite sure if that's really an etiquette point, but... It makes sense. Yeah. Number 12, Monopoly is a forbidden board game amongst the royal family. Quite possibly the weirdest rule, the royal family can't play Monopoly, though we imagine this is a rule that can be broken. I would hope so, man. That's a fun game. I like this attention to how that might appear inappropriate from a family that runs a great deal. Right, right. I could, I no, I definitely, I, I get the idea. The image might not be the right one. Number 13, dinner conversations are formulated. At dinner parties, the queen begins by speaking to the person seated to her right. During the second course of the meal, she switches to the guest on her left. I love this. Wouldn't this make every dinner party you go to so structured and simple and just there's no question? Absolutely. And once again, as a as a example of the height of formality and good behavior, in the 1922 edition of Etiquette, Emily talks about turning the table. And that's the moment when the hostess switches her attention from person on one side to the other. And theoretically, everyone else around the table would do the simultaneously same. or similarly switch their attention. It was called turning the table. Thank you, Queen of England, for maintaining this particular decorum. Number 14. When a royal travels abroad, they're required to pack an all-black outfit. Every family member must be prepared with a funeral-appropriate ensemble in case of a sudden death. Any fans of The Crown will remember that particular moment during uh, season one. This was the first thing that jumped to my mind. For anyone out there who hasn't watched The Crown yet, it's on Netflix. Couldn't recommend it highly enough. Number 15, two heirs aren't allowed to travel together. Again, we're kind of going through this section of like sad and heavy (laughs) protocol for, for the royal family. But once Prince George turns 12, he and Harry will have to fly separately. It makes sense. It's like the vice president and the president staying at different locations mm-hmm. or when the State of the Union happens, that one cabinet member who goes off-site just yep. in case. Just in case. Number 16, the family isn't allowed to sign autographs or take selfies. Don't even think about approaching them with that selfie stick. Oh, my goodness. And this is one that I think, given the, the way selfie culture works these days, it's so hard for people to remember that. And what an awkward position the royal family must get put in whenever someone decides, to, hey, can I take a selfie with you? Or they just pop that stick up. 
Must be nice to have a rule. <laughs> oh, my goodness, right? 17. This one broke my heart. The family can't eat shellfish. Shellfish is off limits to the family, namely because it's more likely to cause food poisoning than others. More oysters for Dan and me. <laughs> it's not all a bed of roses. Number 18, you can't touch a royal. It's rumored that the royal family can't be touched by non-royals, and Kate's awkward reaction to LeBron James throwing his arm around her in a photo is full-blown proof. I don't—awkward? She just stands there doing what she's supposed to do. Is that really awkward? I don't know. <laughs> you, you be the judge. <laughs> Look at the photo and tell us what you think. <laughs> Number 19, they can't wear fur. In the 12th century, King Edward III banned all royals from wearing fur. This rule has been repeatedly broken. I'm sure PETA would love this, but I'm wondering where in the 12th century this idea came from. Yeah, and what substitutes they were hoping for. I don't think synthetics were a thing back then. Number 20, event seating is very much planned. Seating is arranged by order of precedence at all royal events, but factors like age, language, and interest go into account when organizing events. I love that age, language, and interest go into account because it does matter. It's not just about the hierarchy. It's also about making sure people are going to have a good time at this dinner. Number 21, in fact, point continued, there's an entire office dedicated to the organizing of guests. The office of the marshal of the court refer to themselves as mini hosts. I don't think you could possibly elaborate on that. Phenomenal. Number 22, the royal family must adhere to a strict dress code. The royal family's dress code is modest and no members are seen in casual clothing. I will say, you know, we talk about how to present yourself, and Dan knows very well that I am a casual by design person. And it is really nice to see the royal family all dressed up all the time. They always look great. They always look amazing. Don't you look nice? Yeah, I love it. Something to aspire to. Number 23. Even Prince George has a dress code. He always wears tailored shorts, never pants. And I'm just going to say you you really should click on this article and jump forward to number 23 so you can enjoy this as well. This outfit is adorable. Number 24, women must wear hats to all formal events. The fancier, the better. Being someone who's not a fan of hat hair, I'm very glad we in America don't have this this requirement of women. Number 25, after 6 p.m., hats are off and tiaras are on. If an event is held indoors after 6 p.m., women swap their hats for tiaras. And number 26 will be a follow-up to this point, but we're leaving you here for today. Thank you, Paula, and thank you, Elle Magazine. This was a lot of fun. And we will be continuing it next week. We like to end our show on a high note, so we turn to you to hear about the good etiquette you're seeing and experiencing out in the world, and that can come in so many forms. Today's comes from Laura. Dear Lizzie and Dan, I want to start by saying how much I love your show. One of my best friends, Casey, has been a longtime listener and introduced me to your show a few months ago. I am hooked and am in the process of listening through the archived episodes. Thank you for being my etiquette pulse check. Oh, I love that. That's a new one. I like it, too. Casey came to visit me a few weeks ago. She has some dietary needs, so as the host who would be cooking dinner for us, I did what I sometimes do when I'm stumped trying to come up with something to make when friends come. 
I go to their Pinterest page. More often than not, if a guest has one, I look at their recipe section to get some inspiration on ingredients or flavors they may like and fit within their dietary needs. I made a dish I found on her Pinterest page, making adjustments she needed with gluten-free noodles, etc. I felt pretty good about accommodating my friend's needs and being intuitive about something she would probably like until we sat down to dinner. The dish was less than impressive, as you run the risk of when you make something new for a guest. I felt horrible that this dish was just not that good. Edible, but not spectacular. She so politely ate hers, got seconds, and when her boyfriend called later to say hello, even complimented aspects of the dish when she spoke to him on the phone. I offered for us to order something in, but she quickly rejected and praised the flavors again, politely also being honest and not saying that the dish itself was wonderful, but being honest where she could. We had a wonderful visit, and the day after she left, I was listening to episode 139's Postscript segment, where Bill read a section from Emily Post's 1922 etiquette on being a good guest and was instantly brought back to the evening prior. In quotes, You must, with the very best dissimulation at your command, appear to find the food delicious, though they offer you all the viands that are especially distasteful to your palate or antagonistic to your digestion. She truly embodied the spirit and didn't even send herself a telegram to leave, as was suggested <laughs> later in the excerpt. That's so great. <laughs> so a salute to my dear friend Casey, who truly has consideration, respect, and honesty at the core of who she is and demonstrates those traits in a way that inspires all around her to be a better person. Thank you, Laura. Laura, this just cracked me up. I love it. I love it. So I love everything about this salute. Like, here you are trying to be the best host imaginable and you and serve great up idea. something barely. Like, I love it. I just love it. I love all of it. Fabulous idea. The Pinterest idea. Brilliant. Love it. Brilliant. And I, I love that you admit, but testing a new recipe on someone isn't always the best idea. Emily Post must just be smiling down thinking about this situation. I like that image. Thank you, Laura. And thank you for listening. Thank you to everyone who sent us something. You can send us questions, comments, and salutes to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or leave us a message at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. On Twitter, I'm at Daniel underscore Post. And I'm at Lizzie A. Post. On Facebook, we're Awesome Etiquette and the Emily Post Institute. And you can help us out. If you like the show, subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app and leave us a review to help others find us too. Our show is edited by Chris Albertine. Thanks, Thank Chris. Thank you, Chris. And enjoy your vacation. Wouldn't it be more fun to have more friends? After all, we're all strangers till we make friends. <laughs> <laughs>